Welcome to episode 12 of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business Federated Hermes. Ten years ago today, our credit team began investing in global high-yield markets. To mark the occasion, in the last week, we've been posting on social media what we believe are the top 10 changes that have driven the evolution of this marketplace. Today, we'll focus on a selection of those and examine how they've changed the market and how our credit team has adapted their approach to this investment environment. Joining me today is Fraser Lundy. Uh, welcome, Fraser. Thanks, Jacko. Fraser is our head of credit, lead portfolio manager, and has been running that global high-yield capability since day one. So as we talk through this topic today, unlike previous podcast recordings, uh, we will be available to answer your questions. So please do use that live capability that you see on screens to ask us questions as we go through and we'll respond to them. Before we explore the market shifts in high yields over the past decade, let's take stock of where the market is, as we always do. Here we are on the 11th of May, 2020 and for the last week and a half or so we've been wrapped around around 500 basis points on iTrax crossover so having been through that crisis period as the uh, virus hit and then retraced back very very rapidly almost all the way to 450 basis points we're now staying relatively stable in credit land at least at around 500 basis points so to recap that top 10 changes to the global high yield market, I'm going to hand back over to Fraser to rattle through them for you. Thanks again, Jacko. I guess the first thing to say is that the market has roughly doubled in size. In fact, it's actually grown by about 10% just in the last few months. Um, as, as part of that growth, you've also seen the number of issuers um, accessing the market continue to increase. Um, that's roughly increased by about 40% to 50, over 1,500 issuers today. So a lot to choose from. And the size of the issues that they are um, uh, issuing into the market also has risen pretty dramatically and is up now well above sort of $700 million as of today, um, which again is having knock-on good implications for, for liquidity amongst the, the larger issues. Um, some of the things that have evolved as part of that increase in issuance um, include the change in the credit quality makeup. So the, the trend of the last 10 years has continued um, what has really begun from, from day one of the high yield market, where it's becoming less and less about um, financing leveraged buyouts and, and, and a more all-encompassing market. And that's led to the, the decline of the lowest rated uh, of the issuers, so triple C rated issuers are now just 8% of the market, having been about double that 10 years ago at 17%. Um, the different uh, types of sectors involved in the market continues to expand. And you know, just given some of the evolution you've seen uh, in commodities over the last few years, it's unsurprising to see some of the bigger sectors um, more prominent, uh, including things like energy. But the, the breadth of the sectoral coverage continues to expand, uh, as does the capital structures themselves, as the CFOs of the companies issuing are being uh, offered different ways of accessing the market in terms of 
seniority or, or currency or, or term. And you've seen things like uh, additional tier ones enter the market uh, as, a, as a rung on the capital structure, as well as things like hybrid securities on, on the corporate side. Um, all the while, the market continues to globalize. And I think that's one of the key things that, that we've certainly built our capability around, which is that you know, the asset class now incorporates around 85 countries in terms of the underlying representation of the of the corporates. That was um, about 46, 10 years ago. And I seem to remember back you know, when we began doing this, you know, it was down at something like 15. So it's a genuinely uh, global asset class now. And, and, and there's obviously significant benefits to, to treating it as such. Um, the, the market, as I, as I mentioned earlier, has become less and less uh, driven by leveraged buyout activity and private equity uh, financing. Uh, in fact, today, the, the market in terms of companies that have public market capitalization uh, trading in the equity space is, is over nine out of, of every 10 companies. 91% of the companies today have public market cap. Um, the liquidity you know, has continued to be, I'd say, more bifurcated and, and clustered amongst larger issuers, as you've seen the entry of, um, of things like ETFs, improved technology around trading uh, platforms, and, and ultimately more participants, meaning that there's been less uh, uh, concentration of issues uh, held, particularly amongst the large issuers. And I think that that's all combined to see liquidity actually improved to some extent in the larger names uh, while it really evaporated from, from the smaller names. Um, and then lastly, but certainly not least, has been the uh, continued importance of the ESG criteria when it comes to looking at names within the asset class. And we've done lots of work in this space around the negative correlation between credit spread and the company's ESG behaviours. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, considering that there is such a breadth of sectors and those sectors tend to be increasingly of the more cyclical nature and heavy industry nature, um, it, it seems to me like that ESG trend in particular is likely to continue to rise. Great introduction. Thank you much. Thank you very much, Fraser. Um, so just we, there are a lot of changes there, some of them very, very large and you know, really sort of change the shape of the, of the landscape. Take us back. 10 years to when you had a clean sheet of paper, what did the market look like then? And what did you think was going to happen? And how did that inform the approach that you've taken? Because from my understanding, the approach you've taken has been to a very, very large extent consistent over that whole decade. And it's certainly been the intention to try and structure uh, our processes and our team around the way that the market is going rather than the way it has been in the past. That's, that's really been the key mantra that's, that's driven our philosophy. And you know, a lot of these changes that we've just been discussing over the last 10 years were exactly the type of changes that we're, we're just beginning to pick up uh, off of the back of the financial crisis uh, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And um, we, essentially we saw an opportunity having managed high yield at uh, uh, let's say a more a more traditional setup. We were able to see firsthand some of the potential inefficiencies of approaching such a rapidly changing asset class in a way that perhaps was appropriate to its beginnings, 
but was increasingly in, inappropriate for the way that the asset class was going. So, you know, we've mentioned things like globalization and, and scale and evolving capital structure breadth. You know, these things for us meant that structuring a team that was best fitting uh, that asset class was extremely important. So, you know, one of the things that is relatively um, unique to the way that we approach it is that we don't split our team in terms of research capability by region. Um, and that's very intentional uh, because it's, it's trying to reflect the way that the asset class is with the, the companies becoming bigger and more global themselves and therefore competing more globally and therefore matching off against that with a, with a team structure that, that, that best befits that peer group. Um, similarly, we were very keen to be able to write into the objectives and constraints um, enough flexibility to move with the asset class. So as, as we were quite convinced at the time that the different flavors of debt was going to continue to evolve, we didn't want to restrict ourselves in not being able to buy certain flavors. And certainly that's been important when you think about the emergence of things like corporate hybrids or, or AT1s. Um, over the over the years. So really what this was all about was about breaking down those traditional silos. And as, as you know, Jacko, we have a team very much built around uh, a concept of one platform, you know, one fixed income broad platform where there's no, there's no significant lines between research, portfolio management, trading and risk. Everyone sits very close to each other and understands each other's roles. And I think that that's, that's the right type of setup for an asset class which ultimately over the last 10 years has, as we expected, has continued to evolve along those lines. Great. And um, given that you've discussed what I think is the most important thing uh, about running an asset management business, which is your team and the way in which you structure your team, and that today is the 10th birthday, maybe you'd like to sort of rattle off those who've shared the whole 10 years with you and to sort of talk a little about how you've maintained diversity as you've grown and changed teams. Absolutely. So as, as, you, as you point out, there has been some of the team who've now been working together for a very long time indeed. Um, and, and probably first and foremost would be, would be Mitch Rednick and has, uh, has really been the the builder of the research process from a bottom-up perspective and in more recent times has continued to accelerate our ability to lever all the um, responsibility engagement stewardship resources into what, what we think is continuing to be a best-in-class ESG integrated uh, approach to to credit and in this case to high yield um, you know I think the fact that that process that, that Mitch has driven has now been through so many different market environments and continues to be uh, a moving, evolving um, process, leaves us in a, in a very robust place to be able to continue to, to move as the asset class moves, but also to, it takes a sizable amount of the key man risk out of what we do because the people who have come into the team over the years are joining it with a very clear understanding of the way that we, that we want to be able to do things. Um, and while it's been you know, absolutely vital to be able to bring new people in over the years and, and take on new ways of doing things and new perspectives, the underlying processes that, that, that Mitch has been responsible for has, has been hugely important. And the other, the other person to mention in, in that research space that has been with us the whole way through has been Filippo Aloati, who is responsible for all of our 
financials-related uh, research across banks, insurers, and, and specialty finance companies. And again, you know, given the complexity of that particular part of the market and given some of the huge amounts of uh, swings in fundamental and value that you've seen in financials, it's been great to have the stability of having somebody in that seat um, as capable as Filippo through the whole uh, period. There's also been a lot of people um, that have joined along the way, but now looking back, have actually been with us for a long time. Um, so if I think about um, Andre, who, who runs uh, this portfolio with me on a day-to-day -day basis, we've actually been working together in that portfolio management seat now for many years already. And I think what was important about his evolution was that he came from the research side to the portfolio management side within the team. And I think that shows some of the importance we put on the it being able to understand the different types of role within the team and recognizing that there's not uh, a, a big line in the sand between one and the other and actually to be good at one requires an understanding of the other and um you know so andre having come from covering the basic industry space to coming over to portfolio management and having done such a fantastic job over the last few years i would say again has been instrumental and then maybe you know one last uh, shout out from more longer standing uh, team has been John Lee on the trading side. You know, we have a, a very close relationship and constant dialogue with, with John and, and the traders all day, every day, given the importance of connecting the dots between liquidity, fundamentals and, and, and risk. And John has been with us for, for the vast majority of the, the last 10 years and again has been hugely important. The one other thing I would mention here is that, you know, we, we're constantly trying to recognise the continued evolution and, and not pretend that it's always it's ever going to be the finished article and there has been the need to add different types of resource over the years and probably more recently it's worth mentioning to reflect the continued globalization of what we do um, adding Nachu Chocolingham to the portfolio management side has been hugely important given her uh, breadth of experience and, and expertise in the emerging market space. Honestly Working in this work from home lockdown environment makes the closeness of that team even more paramount and uh, apparent. Um, you're right to say we're constantly talking to each other 24-7 and our WhatsApps are buzzing uh, day and night about news stories. And it really is gratifying that that's held together so well. This has been a really interesting test. So rather than go through all 10 of the changes that we've been listing on social media, I'd like to explore four of them in a little more detail, if you don't mind. Um, the first is that globalization trend. And I think the uh, emergence of emerging markets into this asset class, as well as the fight between Europe and US in terms of dominance and size-wise, as we've moved from more um, private markets borrowing into more public markets borrowing, really has changed the shape of it. And you know, maybe you could just explore how that's impacted your processes, also maybe um, some of the risks um, that that has. Yes, um, so I think it's been a really interesting evolution on the, on the globalization side because to begin with, it was, I think, seen by the high yield market more traditionally as, a, as an inconvenience, you know, because it was, something outside of the traditional kind of small cap way of looking at companies that, that people had got used to. Um, so as soon as you enter a more large cap world, which of course 
you know, by the nature of the way that the, the asset class is scaled up, I would say that high yield is essentially a lot uh, more of a mid to large cap asset class these days. It incorporates uh, some risks that you you wouldn't necessarily put at the top of your list in a, in a small cap world. Things like um, currency risk and sovereign risk and commodity related risks. And these are all, you know, I would say of increasing importance over the last few years and therefore require um, appropriate analysis as part of your as part of your research process. I think the way that we've incorporated that more has been to continue to evolve our, our top-down credit strategy meeting to incorporate more of that. I think we've also, as I mentioned, uh, incorporated more in terms of resource, particularly I'm thinking about, about Nacho and the emerging market side. But <clears throat> more than that, I think it, it, it's, it's gone from being an inconvenience to being something which is too attractive to ignore at a broader asset class level. So I think what people sometimes forget is that as soon as you step outside of America and you're being paid in a premium uh, or a spread uh, to compensate you for the fact that that company is not in America, it's in uh, the UK or France or Greece or Turkey or Brazil or where, wherever it might be. And having the ability to diversify that over a, a very large amount of, of, of global corporates gets you to a place where you're picking up an extra premium for it that you wouldn't have if you were investing in a more traditional way. So I think it's it's something that quite clearly pushes your asset class and therefore your allocation further up and out the, the efficient frontier. But being able to approach it in a in a way that you know has a sensible process behind it is, is increasingly important. And I, I would link it to ESG to some extent because I think that the more global you go in terms of the company's operations, then clearly the more ESG uh, risk factors become more more prevalent, and particularly at that line between traditional EM and DM, uh, where you perhaps you're looking at leg legacy state-owned companies and, and that sort of thing, you know this this becomes increasingly important. And on a similar theme in terms of expansion, I think you know ten years ago today we were just emerging from the financial crisis, and one of the things that threw up the financial crisis throughout was too much structuring, uh, too much overcomplication. But actually, I think the high yield market benefited. And you, you always talk about the, the CFO's ability to borrow in different currencies, different maturities, and even different instrument types. That would be the second really big theme that I would point to. So how, how does that impact your analysis approach, your portfolio management approach, and, and I guess your risk management approach as well. Yes. So, I, I, again, this is something which, if you were running high yield from the beginning, would have been a redundant conversation because essentially every high yield deal was in dollars and unsecured and, you know, eight-year non-call for or, or whatever. And um, so it wasn't really a, a necessary discussion. And as you say, particularly with the financial crisis, crisis being some, somewhat of a catalyst, and with debt capital markets themselves just maturing quicker, you, you've got a situation where the, the, the menu of available ways of borrowing money uh, being presented to CFOs by banks um, has expanded. And that's obviously been an advantage to them because they can then uh, customize the way they borrow money to maybe better naturally hedge their operations or diversify their sources of uh, investor base. But from from our side, 
it's also of a huge benefit because again, I think people have historically approached high yield as if it was an equity, you know, because ultimately it was about, traditionally it was about LBO financing. So, you know, meeting the management and making sure they pay you back and staring into their eyes and, and, and that sort of small cap model. Um, increasingly, it's that as well as then being able to choose how to access the company. And of course, as soon as you're able to open up that second part, you have a much better ability to manage fixed income risk. Uh, and by that, I mean things like managing your duration by choosing uh, at which point on the curve to access the company or managing the convexity of your uh, allocation by, you know, either by maybe trying to avoid owning things that are significantly close or above their, their call price. And um, the more that that has become a part of the decision, the more I think you've been able to get a better risk-adjusted return out of the asset class overall in terms of things like sharp ratios, because you're able to manage not just the equity side, which is getting the company right, but you're also increasingly able to manage the, the fixed income side because you now have this available suite of different ways of accessing companies. And I would say that going back to the beginning 10 years ago, it was very, very important for us to embrace that flexibility from day one in terms of the constraints uh, and objectives of what we were trying to do and to be able to uh, message that properly from day one. Um, because obviously this is this certainly back then was, was very much seen as um, was, uh, was was seen potentially as being off piste or drifting away from core high yields. I don't think that's the perception anymore. I think it, really the perception these days is is just that you know, if the CFO is able to make that decision, then then so should the fund manager. Yeah, I very much like the way you describe that as um, being able to manage fixed income risks. Um, coming back to that one, rather than moving on immediately to the next, where did yield and income fit in all of this as a as a sort of fixed income factor that you're managing to? Well. As an asset class, it's obviously um, very attractive when it comes to to, to the income generating um, possibilities. But I think historically it has been tainted by some of these traditional um, perceptions of the asset class and over reliance on LBOs, over reliance on the US, over reliance on triple Cs. Obviously, none of which are true of today. And I think. Um, Part of the issue, therefore, has been that it has constantly been compared with the rest of fixed income as a uh, as a risk-on allocation. When I, I would argue that increasingly it should be seen as a um, potential comparable to um, equity dividend income, albeit with arguably a lot lower risk in terms of, of volatility and, and drawdown. Um, but but nevertheless, again, because the asset class is now so broad the ability to customize and um, look at individual parts of the curve or seniority or uh, or you know maybe individual sectors or, or whatever you want to do is is there now to be able to to customize and I think for different investor bases with different yield targets or um, uh, ability to accept different forms of risk there's now an ability to size and shape different forms of, of high yield uh, to suit that in a way that perhaps wasn't there 10 years ago. Yeah, so I, I, that leads me on to the next question, which is the credit quality of high yields overall, and maybe 
you can allude to the credit quality of the way in which you attack that global high yield problem, but still trying to deliver and, and achieving uh, an underlying income, which is comparable to an index. So you, we made the observation the credit quality of the high yield universe has improved. And I think the listeners would also expect you to talk about where you like to access risk within high yield, you know, from, from a risk perspective, viewed through the lens of ratings, which is imperfect. But, you know, you use that as your lens, maybe. Yeah, um, I, I've always felt that there's there's too much of a link between um, ratings and and your overall risk profile, and people I don't think fully um, connect the the various different moving parts to to get to how you can take risk within this asset class. Obviously, one of them is to go down in credit quality, but as we said at the beginning, the the the, the amount of very low quality ratings bands in in high yield these days. Is, is half what it was 10 years ago. Um, but, but clearly there's, there's many other ways of doing it, in, including expressing views on how long to lend for uh, in terms of spread duration. And as I said, because these companies increasingly are becoming multi-layered capital structure names with bonds right across the curve, lending for longer is another means of adding risk, as is perhaps favoring some sectors over others, which, which offer more cyclicality and therefore more premium where, where when when we're deeming that to be an appropriate time to be doing that um you've also now we mentioned the eighty ones in the financial space because of the different levels of seniority available you can take subordination risk as an as a dis- additional means but i think you know our our process is largely driven around the idea of um investing in in companies that are viable and and not investing in companies for distressed reasons Great, thank you, Fraser. And and we're going to close with with the the ESG and engagement piece that they have gained their place. Um, talk to me about the changes that you've seen there, and and you're right to point out the the amazing work that Mitch and our colleagues in EOS have done to to shape that. Yes. Um... What we wanted to do was prove that there is a quantitative link between ESG factors and uh, credit spreads, i.e. You know, cost of capital on the debt side. And I think the work that Mitch has been able to do, particularly on that side of proving the thesis, um, means that it's not just a, a nice to have for us within high yield to be able to integrate this in a, in a sensible and credible way. It's actually a, a fiduciary duty imperative. You know, having having laid out how obvious the relationship is, um, it's therefore a clear driver of the performance of credits, and therefore you wouldn't be doing your job properly were you not incorporating this. What we've learned also is that because of the sectoral makeup of high yield and the fact that it's continuing to uh, become more um, cyclical by nature of, of of what it's doing as it's going away from traditional LBOs towards more uh, multifaceted sectors, the ability to just exclude more challenged sectors from an ESG perspective is a little bit less efficient than if you were to do that in conjunction with uh, 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 an engagement um, part of the process. And I think that it's lent itself to our uh, broader philosophy to invest in companies that we think are um, viable going concern companies because those types of companies, what we we have found, have been more open to engagement because they're less worried about 
getting from today to next week, which is sometimes what you might find at the low end of the triple C market. Um, we've also found that companies that are bigger and more global and have more multi-layered capital structures, again, have more uh, desire to engage typically because they they need us as repeat issuers and they, they need the market open and available to them. Again, if you contrast that to uh, a one-off LBO that maybe you don't see for another five years' time, then perhaps their um, ability or willingness rather to engage is, is somewhat less. So we have found that our core approach and our bread and butter type company is very aligned with the type of company that is engageable to begin with. And um, you know, we've we've worked very hard again from a bottom-up analyst level, and all the analysts have been doing a fantastic job of continuing to bring forward our process in this regard to improve the way that we um, discuss and, and the homogeneity of, of, of our discussions around ESG at credit committee. Um, we, we score credits uh, from a bottom-up perspective with regard to the fundamentals of the company, but also we have a separate score for ESG, which means that the discussions around that and the inputs into that credit committee can, can, and are, can be and are substantial. Um, some of the um, some of the intellectual capital behind that has has helped us um, work with the CFA, for example, on their ESG qualification. And some of our team have been helping design that. Others in the team have actually been through and, and passed the exam. And I think it, it's it's going to continue to be an evolving process. And it's it's been great from my perspective that so many of the team have been very proactive at continuing to drive forward our process in this regard because it's, it's certainly not going to stop uh, its evolution and, and will require us to continue to, to refine it as we go forward. Um, good place for us to pause there on the, on the backward looking and start to think about the forward looking. And I guess in 2010, 10 years ago, you anticipated the globalization of the market and the need to be flexible, um, what do you think will shape the outlook going forward over the next decade? And, and I guess, you know, how the asset class will develop, but also how our approach to the asset class will develop. Yeah, I think one thing is that up until now, I would say that um, the asset class is still very much embedded within the fixed income world from the point of view of asset allocation and, and perception. And I think that that's one thing that is likely to change over the coming years. And it may, it may well be in hindsight, who knows, that, that the coronavirus period ha ends up being the catalyst for this change as one of the things that it has already brought about has been a crisis in, in dividends. And um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a situation where high yields emerges as something of a white knight to that dividend crisis. And the increased... Uh, education of people around the fact that actually the level of income and certainly the level of risk adjusted income that you can garner from this asset class stacks it up very very well compared to some of its some of the other alternatives outside of the fixed income world and if that's the case then I think that could well fuel the size of the market continuing to expand um, as I mentioned it's already risen by 10% just in the last few months on the back of uh, a doubling over the last 10 years. And I do expect that that's going to continue. Um, so, you know, I, I still feel like, although it's doubled in 10 years, we could well be looking back at this in 10 years time and thinking it was still a comparatively small asset class compared to its potential uh, as of today. Because uh, again, 
what a lot of what we're talking about today is not news to us, but but for a lot of market participants is very alien to what they continue to perceive of of high yield being uh, a U.S. centric private equity centric place, which which clearly it's not. And I think that the more understanding of that that goes through, the the more the asset class itself will flourish and and, and be able to demonstrate better risk adjusted returns. Yeah, and I guess one must not forget that central banks are buying this asset class, uh, which I guess tells you something about how important it is to underlying economies or how important central banks perceive it to be to underlying economies and supporting those corporates that employ vast numbers of individuals out there in the real world. I guess the other thing that I think we're likely to see and, and, and we're adapting to is a change towards a more thematic, sustainable uh, approach towards the asset class itself. While the asset class grows, I guess the way in which you capture risk within the asset class, class can also change. I would imagine that uh, we'll see further product evolution into more sustainable, um, you know, maybe more climate change focused or, or there are other focuses that will be taken to this. So before we give some key takeaways from today's podcast, the last thing I'll do is ask you uh, the all options on the table question for the, this uh, episode, Fred. We always get one listener coming in and, and throwing a hard question in the mix, and we always try to be honest by being direct and, and taking those questions on the chin. And I think the really big question that people will have around high yield as an asset class, if you're going to see it grow in the way that you've described, is how well does it do in those periods of volatility? So, you know, maybe you can take that one first. You know, how how well has global high yield done through uh, the taper tantrum, through the fourth quarter of 2018, through the recent crash? Um, let's stick to the last 10 years rather than talking about high yield through the financial crisis. But How's it done through those periods? Yeah, so I think this is a, this is a fair question, and again, is is a, a maybe a, a historic um, negative point for the asset class, probably because of the way that people position it. So, of course, it's unlikely that as an asset class, you're going to see the same level of um, defence as you would do from other parts of fixed income, including investment grade credit. Or, or indeed, government bonds, either developed or, or or emerging market. But as again, as I said, the the reality of this asset class is it also offers you so much on on the more equity side, and and really genuinely does sit in the middle uh, between the two. And I think um, when you look at the way that it's behaved in drawdown periods, you kind of have the good and the bad. So to be again, to to be perfectly honest, in in drawdown periods of the last ten years. The, the beginnings of that sell-off period have not been great for the asset class because it, it does take a significant drawdown. It, and to some extent, it's taken a pretty significant drawdown in the last few months. Um, and there's been a few smaller ones in between. Obviously, you've had the energy crisis in 2015. You've had the Eurozone crisis in 2011. But, but the key thing here is that coupons are contractual and you know dividends are, are not. And what we found that, therefore, is that the ability for high yield to bounce has consistently been better and so you you have we have grown to expect high yield to 
uh, be able to claw its way back much, much quicker than other parts of the of the risk asset spectrum. And I think um, that's likely to continue to be the case uh, going forward, just again, given this more pronounced difference between uh, can pay versus must pay, which you're currently seeing between dividends and, and, and coupons. Um, what one thing probably to mention on the, on the more fixed income side here is that it probably doesn't have the benefit of uh, government bonds rallying like it has done over the last 10 years going forward. And albeit it's not overly correlated to rates, it has had some, some element of that benefit when it's come to some of the sell-offs in, in, in 2011 and 2015-16. I think it's unlikely from these starting points to say that it would benefit much further. Um, but equally, when you compare it to pretty much everything in the fixed income universe, it's also the least exposed to that on the other side. And, and uh, if anything, actually, it certainly in terms of low double B and below, it tends to be positively correlated to rising government bond yields in terms of its performance. So there's a lot to be said here, I think, for its, um, its ability to bounce back pretty hard. And also its ability to to maybe be quite far away from one of the key risks to to the rest of fixed income here, which is uh, underlying rates being on the floor. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Fraser. Um, just maybe if I can wrap up with some key takeaways for me from today. Um, first is that um, having engaged in this asset class, um, we set about building a, a consistent but flexible process, um, taking that even further with a team that's been consistent and flexible and dynamic and diverse and grown. Um, many of the members of that team have stayed uh, in this uh, group throughout the whole of those 10 years. The second uh, observation takeaway for me is that you know, Fraser has talked consistently about constantly reappraising and reevaluating the assumptions that underlie those processes and practices. And I guess the way that he talked about ESG and uh, the CFA uh, work that the team have done goes to the heart of that, as well as the hiring of Aaron Hay into the team to be our, our lead engager to embed that sort of engagement methodology into the credit team in talking to the corporates and, and sharing that information with um, with the, the research analysts, the portfolio managers, and even the traders. And then the last, I think, of the key takeaways is, given the asset class's evolution, the clear risks there are within high yield, it's one of the more risky parts of uh, the fixed income investment universe, it's absolutely critical that we maintain that openness with our clients. Openness about the approach that we take, openness about what we think the asset class will do, and openness also about how our approach might evolve as the challenges that the asset class throw at us evolve. Thank you very much for joining me today, Fraser. Happy birthday to the Global High Yield Strategy that you and, and Mitch built 10 years ago. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, listeners, today. We'll speak to you again in the next episode of Delta. Stay well. Speak to you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.